You're listening to Research Inside Out, an inside look at research outside the classroom. This podcast is recorded at Lakehead University's Aurelia campus. I'm your host, Stephanie Edwards, and today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Michael Stevenson from the Departments of History and Interdisciplinary Studies. Broadly, Michael's research focuses on 20th century Canadian history, but he has studied quite a wide range of topics, including Canadian military and diplomatic history, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, and history at the local scale. Keep listening to find out more about his interesting research on Aurelia's own Champlain Monument, as well as why he refers to history as a jigsaw puzzle that doesn't quite ever run out of pieces. Hello, and today I'm here with Michael Stevenson, who is from the Departments of History and Interdisciplinary Studies. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Now, before we get started on the more specific questions, can you just give the listeners a broad idea of what you do for research? Uh, My research is focused in a number of different fields. My doctoral studies were in military history, so I do have a track looking at Canada's military history, particularly in the Second World War. I also have interest in diplomatic history, and I'm also interested in the career and life of Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher and Nobel Prize winner. Great. A lot of people probably think, I know I've probably been, say that I've done this as well, is they think Canadian history and they go like, oh, that's kind of boring when you put it against like other history, but it actually is like really interesting once you get into it and it's not always at the surface. So what exactly got you, like were you always interested? In Canada specifically, or was there a certain instance, a story that you heard that got you on the topic? Oh, definitely. I think the idea that Canadian history is somehow boring, it's it's a false idea, mm. basically. You know, Canada has a, has a fascinating history, any number of different fields, political, military, economic, diplomatic history of Indigenous populations in Canada. Our history is as rich as any other countries in the world. Uh, maybe not as long in, in, in some respects. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's, there's fascinating material to, to go through as a historian. And I've always been really interested in Canadian history as long as I have been in the, in the field. And um, that, interest is, that interest has only grown as, as time has gone by. Mm-hmm. Do you find it hard sometimes maybe to get students interested right away? And do you find that they kind of do a trajectory of like starting the class being a bit hesitant and then by the end they're kind of on board with how great it actually is and how complex no, I think students come into all history classes with an interest. It's it's definitely a subject that you you need an interest in if you want to perform at the at the highest level. And I think the students that I've taught over the past fifteen or twenty years, you know, they're interested from 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 the get go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, re- it really is the job of the instructor to feed that interest, to channel that interest in some respects, to make sure that everything is being thought of in a kind of a proper and historically correct manner, but I don't think students anywhere have the idea that um, they need to be challenged. You know, they're, they're coming into class, I think, ready to go, essentially, mm-hmm. in terms of learning, learning new things, learning exciting things in the historical field. And you mentioned militarization and diplomatic history. Was there anything specific that got you on that path, or was, it that, was that always an interest as well when you started? I had always had an interest in Canadian military history. And when I did my doctoral work at the University of Western Ontario, I went for Canadian military history, specifically the history of mobilization policies during the Second World War. So I I knew what I wanted to do, and I was fortunate enough to have a great supervisor at at Western who kind of fostered my my interest in history. My first job out of, of university was in the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ottawa, and that's where I kind of developed a, a new 
research interest in diplomatic history, particularly in the John Diefenbaker government from 1957 to 1963. I spent three years in, in Ottawa working on the historical aspects of Diefenbaker's foreign policy, and that's where those two primary research streams I have in military and in diplomatic history of Canada, uh, that's where they got going. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that project, about the Diefenbaker and the nuclear project that you, or the article at least that I read? Uh, sure. The Department of Foreign Affairs publishes uh, collections of diplomatic documents going back many decades to the, the First World War, basically. And my job, that first job in Ottawa, I was one of the editors of the, the annual volumes that were published dealing with specific years of various governments. And so when I arrived in Ottawa, they were just starting the, the John Diefenbaker period. And so I spent a few years editing some of those those volumes. Primarily, my research interests coming out of that project deal with Canadian-American relations, particularly economic relations, and the, the question over nuclear weapons. Canada had become involved in both the NATO defense structure with European allies and also the NORAD structure, uh, the air defense posture for continental North America. The United States was constantly kind of pressuring Canada to adopt the most advanced military technologies. And nuclear weapons, of course, were part of that defense umbrella that the United States thought Canada should should adopt. And so much of my research has been focused on the Diefenbaker government's reluctance, and in some cases outright refusal, to have nuclear weapons on Canadian soil. Ultimately, it led to the downfall of Diefenbaker's government in 1963. The constant pressure by the Americans basically caused Diefenbaker's cabinet to implode in January and February of 1963. Diefenbaker lost the election of 1963, and the Liberal Party returned, returned to power. So nuclear weapons are one of the big issues in the Diefenbaker government, and it's one that particularly interests me because it also ties into the military history background that I that I have as well. One of the things that jumped out at me when I read the piece was there's obviously a big role on American pressure, but there also seemed to be a bit of a role of like nationalism and like public opinion and pressure. So was that a big part as well that you found, or is that kind of like a something you find a lot in your research that public and nationalism obviously play a big role? This was one of Diefenbaker's great problems, of course. He, he he could not evaluate public opinion in an effective fashion. He was very, very concerned that any decision he made, not just on nuclear weapons, but almost every major policy decision, he didn't know how to kind of govern, like forcefully adopt one platform. He was always kind of twisting in the wind, you know, indecisive, insecure, he just wasn't sure how this question of nuclear weapons in particular should be approached. Some of the public opinion polls that were appearing at that time favored or seemed to favor the Canadian acquisition of these American weapons. Other opinion polls seemed to indicate that Canadians did not want to have nuclear warheads on Canadian soil. Diefenbaker was torn. His own government was torn as well. He had some very, very strong cabinet ministers, like the Minister of Defense, Douglas Harkness, lobbying forcefully that Canada should live up to its military obligations and adopt nuclear weapons. You had other senior cabinet ministers, like Howard Green, the Foreign Affairs Minister, basically saying that we need to protect Canada's sovereignty. And the moment we accept American nuclear weapons in Canada, we are essentially controlled by the United States in terms of mm -hmm. military response. 
So Diefenbaker was was dealt a difficult hand in, in some respects. This was a very contentious, difficult issue. And it's also important to note that even the opposition parties at that time, for most of Diefenbaker's time in office, were steadfastly opposed to nuclear weapons as well. It wasn't until January 1963 when Lester Pearson, the Liberal Party leader, kind of turned around and thought that Canada should indeed live up to its commitments that it had agreed to with Washington. And the Liberal Party then became a proponent of nuclear weapons. That was kind of a decisive moment because then it gave voters an option, Mm -hmm. essentially. The Diefenbaker government in power could be cast as not living up to its commitments. Here you had Lester Pearson and the Liberal Party now basically saying, yes, if we're elected in the next general election, we will follow through on Canada's commitments to acquire these these advanced weapons. And that really put Diefenbaker in a serious bind. And you mentioned the term nationalism. This is where Diefenbaker could kind of exercise most of his main arguments. He could basically now say that he was, in fact, the Canadian nationalist, Mm -hmm. and that he was protecting Canadian sovereignty, and that he was looking to protect the interests of Canadians from American kind of influence and, and control. It didn't work in the end, but that appeal in the 1963 election to nationalism saved the Conservative Party in some respects. I mean, the Diefenbaker government had had a very difficult time before the 1963 election. The economy was dismal in many respects. You had a series of international crises that weren't necessarily responded to by Canada in an effective fashion. You had this contentious issue of nuclear weapons, kind of the the elephant in the room, you know, always, always there, never went away. And the conservative government almost totally imploded. When you look at the 1963 election campaign that Diefenbaker ran, yes, it was kind of bitterly negative in some respects. Yes, it was very sharp. Yes, it was very contentious in terms of the rhetoric. But that was Diefenbaker's strength, you know, a great orator in many respects. Canada hasn't really seen somebody with the speaking prowess, the public speaking prowess of of John Diefenbaker. And his appeal to nationalism in that 1963 election even though the Conservatives didn't maintain power, they managed to salvage enough seats in the House of Commons to at least be an effective opposition. Uh, indeed, Pearson won a minority government. He didn't get the majority that he, that he wanted. And I think it was Diefenbaker's electioneering, basically, uh, his very strong appeal mm-hmm. to Canadian nationalism. Even though he didn't win the election, it still prevented the Conservative Party from a very, very serious defeat in 1963. When you go into researching events like this and kind of presenting the historical narrative to the public, do you go in, I know you go, you obviously go in objectively, but do you find yourself formulating an opinion, taking one side or the other, or do you try to sort of keep neutral the whole time? Well, I think it's the primary job of any historian to be as neutral as possible. That is impossible. We all have our biases. We all have our preconceived opinions. But I think the goal of any historian should be to go into the original archival material. And what do the documents say? We all approach a subject with kind of notions of what happened. The primary documents will usually tell you whether or not your preconceptions are indeed Mm -hmm. indeed correct. And very frequently, those primary documents, you might go into a subject or approach a subject thinking you know the general course 
of events. Once you get to the primary documents, you can be convinced very, very quickly that, in fact, your original ideas about the subject were completely wrong. I know when I did my, my doctoral work, I kind of went into my examination of the conscription structures in Canada, both of the civilian labor force and of the military side of things in terms of getting soldiers into the army. I always had the idea that the Canadian state at that time was able to develop structures that were very coercive, very comprehensive, and that you know every man and woman in Canada was closely monitored and closely watched and closely supervised and you know told what to do. And it was this kind of well-oiled administrative machine that mobilized Canada's very successful war effort. When I went to Ottawa to work in the files of National Selective Service, the agency that supervised all of this, you very, very quickly realized that any notion that I had of an efficient state Mm -hmm. kind of guiding and supervising these mobilization strategies, I was wrong, you know, and I knew I was wrong within the first two days Mm -hmm. I was was in the archives. The structures that were developed during the Second World War, they were really loose, in fact. They were very often ineffective. They, They very often came up against opposition from members or sections of the Canadian public that they couldn't overcome. So the idea, I think, that we had that, you know, all of Canada kind of rallied around the flag and everyone just did what they were told and accepted everything the government mandated, I found out very quickly that I, that I was wrong mm-hmm. in that, that opinion. I, I think that's the important thing. The, the primary documents that historians use, they should shape accurate viewpoints or accurate positions on what happened in the past. We'll never know or we'll never have a complete picture Mm -hmm. because the archival record is always not 100% complete. But it's the job of historians basically to to make sure they're able to, you know, use their skills of analysis and research to try to bring our understanding of the past to kind of its maximum possible extent. And of course, we'll always, we always find out more. There are always you know, new sources coming on stream, new approaches, new ways of looking at existing sources. So the one thing I love about history, you can never say you're done, you know, mm-hmm. or we now know what everything that happened. It's not, it's not, it's not definitive. It's, it's, it's always a big jigsaw puzzle. There are always hundreds of more pieces of the puzzle to be, to be fit into place, mm-hmm. essentially. In regards to the primary documents, I noticed in both the nuclear weapons and the birch and wrestle that things were under embargo or things were classified like does that get frustrating as a historian when you know that like a piece is right there but you just can't you can't get it well for both the the records especially for diplomatic and military history there are very serious privacy limitations that you can kind of come up against when you research those those topics so usually there's going to be a 30 40 50 year delay before historians can really start to have the files of government agencies being being opened up. That's both a blessing and a curse, I think. You know, yes, you would love to have all of the record available as soon as you want it. Mm-hmm. But the one interesting thing about historians is, is because we know, in many cases, that there are large blocks of records that are not going to be open for a certain amount of time into the future. You know, there's almost that, you know, the Christmas morning they're going to come open eventually Mm -hmm. and and as as soon as you do have the opportunity to have 
uh, access to fresh new records. You know, that's really exciting. You know, that that's where, you know, I really love historical research. When you get into a new batch of, of mm-hmm. papers that very, very few people have ever have ever examined, you know, you're essentially rewriting history based on your access to those new documents that people hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. My work on the Bertrand Russell project is interesting in that regard as well. Bertrand Russell has been written about for many, many decades, you know, four or five substantial biographies of Russell, vast personal archive of of letters and and correspondence. But there are large sections of, of Russell's writings that we still don't know much about. My particular interest right now in Russell studies is his relationship to his third wife, Patricia. The correspondence that was exchanged between Russell and Patricia was embargoed until Patricia's death, or a certain time had to elapse after Patricia's death. She didn't die until 2004. So Russell scholars have been kind of waiting for these papers, these mm-hmm. correspondence letters, to come open, essentially, after after her, her passing. And again, it's, re- it's really exciting to get into that material now that that embargo has, has passed. And what those letters tell us has, in many respects, you know, transformed the way Russell scholars have viewed Bertrand Russell's life in the 1930s and, and 1940s. It's the least studied period of, of Russell's life. There's been a huge amount of work done on his pre-World War One technical philosophy, logic, and mathematics. There's been a very large amount of material written on his 1950s and 1960s activities, particularly in the field of disarmament advocacy. But that period, 20-year period that he knew Patricia, we don't really have a complete picture. And so this is, again, where historical research is, is so interesting. All of a sudden, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of letters exchanged between Russell and Patricia coming open. You know, these are not short email type of mm-hmm. letters that we exchange regularly today. I mean, these are 10, 15, 20 page letters that basically describe both the personal lives of Russell and Patricia, but also all of Russell's professional activities as well. His speaking tours, his, his political viewpoints, his feelings on, say, the rise of Hitler in Germany, breakdown of the international order in the late 1930s. These are these are really important sources. And as a historian, this is what you you want to be seeing. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a chance to basically deal with new topics, be it Bertrand Russell studies, be it any aspect of of, of history. Historians, you know, we want those primary sources. Those are what guide us in terms of getting a better understanding uh, and knowledge of the past. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people will probably think, oh, like, what can letters tell you? But I know, too, from my own research that they tell you quite a bit <laughs> about it. So do you, is there anything in there that you found that kind of shook up what you knew or you weren't expecting or really surprised you? Russell was one of the great letter writers in, in history, frankly. The Bertrand Russell archives that are held at McMaster University, Russell authored more than 40,000 letters in, in his life. He was somebody who was a prolific letter writer. He would write 10 and 15 a day. Again, in 2015, I think we've lost the, the importance of the written, mm-hmm. the written letter. It's just something that seems to be a, a relic of the past in, in many respects. But again, th- these, are, these are letters that aren't just kind of cursory or three lines long. Th- th- these are, are very, very in-depth letters that Russell wrote 
to uh, Patricia Russell. And they, they really have opened up the whole field of Russell studies in this period of, of, of time. We didn't know, for instance, anything about a major lecture tour, a speaking tour that he undertook in Scandinavian countries in 1935. We literally knew nothing about it. The only information that we had on that, that tour in 1935 was just a few kind of secondary references to it. Once you read the letters, very, very detailed correspondence that Russell wrote to Patricia during that tour, it's totally changed what we thought about Russell in the mid-1930s. Mm-hmm. For instance, he, he had left technical philosophy before World War I, and then beginning with World War I, he had kind of been a, a public intellectual. Uh, he left the university behind. He didn't teach at Cambridge anymore. He was more or less just a, almost a journalist, writing hundreds of newspaper articles and journal articles about various social, economic, and, and political topics. In the mid-1930s, he decides to kind of get back into philosophy, and he authors two or three very important papers in the field of philosophy in, in 1935. And we didn't know this before, but he basically uses the Scandinavian tour to kind of unveil his ideas. Mm-hmm. And that was important because while he was in Denmark, for instance, he bounced his ideas about physics off of Niels Bohr. We had no we had no clue that he was meeting with these luminaries in the field of physics before these letters were opened up. Werner Heisenberg met with Russell for hours mm-hmm. to discuss the cutting-edge physics that was being undertaken by Heisenberg, by Bohr, by Einstein. You know, Russell was trying to fit himself into that field of, of studies, essentially. And we really didn't know the extent of Russell's understanding or commitment to knowing more about physics. Once these letters have, have come open, we can now kind of trace the evolution of Russell's thought about physics uh, based on his detailed conversations with these. Again, Russell wasn't a physicist. He was, he was, a, he was a philosopher and logician and mathematician. He was grappling with the questions of physics. Uh, the 1930s were likely the most important time period in mm-hmm. physics, likely of the 20th century. And to almost have a master class in physics from Niels Bohr or Heisenberg, that, that was, that, that's, that's been very exciting to see exactly what, what Russell did during that lecture. And the other the other new letters as well, throughout the 1930s and 40s, you know, we're, we're able to fill in the details of Russell's very turbulent political life, his very turbulent social life, his very turbulent business life. Uh, he couldn't get a job, basically. He had to come to the United States in 1938 and then started a kind of series of short-term jobs at universities, University of Chicago, UCLA, Harvard, this was a period that he couldn't seem to get any traction in, primarily because of his social views. Everyone was willing to admit that Russell was a genius who held very, very unconventional views about marriage and sexuality and in a very conservative American political climate. Mm-hmm. You know, Russell struggled to basically make ends ends meet. And we didn't know really a great deal about those struggles. Once again, these new letters, kind of the lifeblood of Russell studies, the very fact that we can now have this vast volume of correspondence now available. It, it's, it's been able to basically let Russell scholars 
fill in the jigsaw puzzle. You know, I mentioned I used the analogy of the jigsaw mm-hmm. puzzle earlier. That period of the 30s and 40s was almost completely empty. Now we're able to start to really fill in a lot more of the the puzzle pieces as a result of these new materials coming coming open. So it's so it's a really exciting mm-hmm. time in a historian's career essentially when you're when you're able to either stumble across new materials or for the case of a lot of government records and for private personal papers you know you know they're going to come open on such and such a date and you're just yeah you're at the door you're at the door you know looking in wondering when the door is going to be opened and and it it really is a a fascinating experience Mm -hmm. to to see those new records for the first time yeah that's great sounds sounds exciting i think to switch gears again you have quite a, a broad research background i just want to talk a little bit quickly about the work you've done with the champlain monuments and how did you get interested in that and do you enjoy more learning the history of the area you're living in and working in or is it equally as exciting as learning about history that's taken place far away from where you are i think local history is is really important i think in many respects, historians have an obligation to get involved in, in, in local history. Uh, we're very fortunate, to, for, very fortunate to be working here at, at Lake Adorilia or you know any any university in in the province. There's vast wealth of, of resources mm-hmm. at the local history level. When I came to Lakehead in 2011, you know I, I went to Kuching Park. I saw this magnificent monument to Samuel de Champlain there at at the beach. You know, and I and I just thought, well, that's yeah, that's that's great. It really is a magnificent. Yeah. You know, you, you've seen it many times. Mm-hmm. It's a magnificent piece of architecture and and sculpture. I am not a scholar of New France or of Samuel de Champlain, but a couple years passed, and for some reason that that monument always seemed to be kind of in my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so very slowly, as, as is the pattern with a lot of historical research, just kind of pick away a little bit here and a little bit there. And, and I did some newspaper research, and there had been a few mentions of Aurelia's Champlain monument in some existing historical work. There are lots of Champlain monuments around North America because of his uh, eminence in the founding of, or his importance in the founding of, of New France. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once that interest was further stoked then you have to start to see if there are records who built it who sculpted it who sculpted it who commissioned it and the as, as it as it happens the there the, the Aurelia committee that kind of commissioned the sculpture commissioned the Champlain monument they had kept all of their papers essentially and in the archives of Ontario there were exceptionally exceptionally detailed files on why the Champlain Monument exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vernon March, why did Vernon March become the sculptor, a famed English uh, sculptor? Uh, it was meant to be unveiled in 1915, the 300th anniversary of Champlain's arrival in Huronia. It wasn't unveiled until 1925. You know, why did the delay occur? And I think the the records, once they were available, you know, that, that was kind of the trigger for me that I thought, Okay, here's a topic that we don't know very much about. It's of great interest to local people. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in Aurelia who doesn't know what the Champlain Monument is. Mm-hmm. And it does have this remarkably detailed and interesting history. So as a historian, you know, that's kind of the green light to, to really tackle a project 
as I got into the story, it, it really was a fascinating story, particularly in the question or particularly surrounding the question of the representation of Aboriginals in the monument. You know, many people will have seen pictures of this, but the way the monument was designed, it kind of shows the European explorers like Champlain almost in a dominant position with the Hurons in the monument kind of, you know, on a lower level, almost deferring to the authority of the European explorers. Mm -hmm. And to, to go back in time and see... That was deliberate as well. That, that's, that's, that, that was part of the plan. And to go back in time and kind of see the attitudes of the 1910s and the 1920s towards the Aboriginal populations in this, this region of Ontario, it really was quite eye-opening in many respects to, to see you know, how the placing, the posturing of the figures in the Champlain Monument, it's an image of society at that time. And of course, as the decades have passed, many, many people have questioned the placement of the Aboriginal figures in the Champlain Monument. Mm -hmm. There's been wide debate coming down to 2015, 2016 about what do we do with monuments like this that were commissioned and built and designed in a time period when our attitudes towards the Aboriginal populations were much different than they are today. So I think history also has the ability to speak to to the present. And in the case of the Champlain Monument, here's a perfect case study of Aboriginal relations with European settlers, how they evolved over, over the centuries. Mm -hmm. And what exactly do we do with these representations? You know, what, what, what is the response in 2016 to see a marvelous piece of sculpture that doesn't necessarily reflect modern or current values? And as a historian, you know, that's, that's really exciting for me to see something in the past that you're researching. It doesn't stop mm -hmm. once the monument was unveiled in 1925. The history of the Champlain Monument is carried forward to the present day, and we're still talking about it. There are still, you know, you can still see in the local newspaper, newspaper columns being written about it. There are still letters to the editor being written, mm -hmm. you know, questioning why we have the monument still on public display in Kuchiching Beach Park. And you also have very firm supporters of the Champlain Monument as well, saying, you know, we have to use the past in a constructive way. Yeah. The idea of just kind of hiding or destroying or moving these historical monuments and memorials, that's not a good way to study or approach history. Mm -hmm. So you have this debate going on about the Champlain Monument, and this debate is on in the wider Canadian population as well. So local history... To come back to your original question, you know, it, it, it's really fascinating. Mm. I, I, I tend, I, I sometimes think people tend to think that local history, it's not, it's not important. It's not big. It's not like nuclear weapons for Canadian military forces. It's, but in my opinion, the, the topics that are raised are just as important, just mm. as big locally, regionally, nationally. The debate about the Champlain Monument, for instance, that's a big debate both then and coming down to the present day as well. So I was, I was really lucky to kind of get into that local study of Champlain, and I've moved on to a second project as well, uh, local history, almost going back to my earlier roots in military history of World War II in Canada. Uh, Aurelia had a 
basic training center for new recruits in Aurelia. It's called Camp 26. And over the course of the camp's operation, beginning in 1942, thousands of fresh soldiers, newly enlisted soldiers, passed through Aurelia. There were about 500 soldiers at Camp 26 at any one point in, in time. And this is another, you know, really important topic that we don't really know much about. We do have some local historians here who had done a very good job of collecting a lot of sources. So I was beginning with a, a larger body of facts or documents mm -hmm. than I had been with the Champlain Monument. Um, but there's a lot more work to be done. I've been to Ottawa to look at the, the war diary for Camp 26. And the picture that's really emerging is it's, it's Aurelia was on a wartime footing, essentially. You have a very, very small population of the town of Aurelia in the 1940s during the war, maybe six, 7,000 people. And yet here you have this very, very large military training center. As many as 1,000 soldiers were being trained here between 1942 and 45 at any one time, or the maximum number of soldiers was about 1,000. At any one time, there were always five or 600 soldiers here. And that couldn't help but have a major impact on the life of Aurelians. I mean, military training in Kuchiching Beach Park, for instance, or marching and exercises involving joint infantry, aircraft, streams. We, we just don't have any kind of comprehension in 2016 of the extent of the mobilization effort, effort mm -hmm. here. So I'm working on that second project as well as I'm still working on the Champlain Monument project. But uh, it, it really has been a fascinating, different focus for me. And I'm certainly finding that there are dozens of these kind of local projects that, that really have a, a large primary source base mm -hmm. that are there to examine. And, you know, I've started with two, but I'm sure I'll, I'll also develop other local history topics of interest as well. So we'll have to stay tuned for the new updates on your research. <laughs> I guess, I guess so. Uh, to wrap up, if you had to describe your research in five words, uh, what words would you choose? That, that, that's a bit, bit of a difficult question. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, one word would certainly be comprehensive. You know, I, I think the goal of any historian isn't to approach you know, anything from a limited point of view. To come back to the issue of sources, you have to, as a historian, really try to exhaust as many avenues of research as you can when you're approaching any specific subject. So certainly the job number one of historians is to be comprehensive in, in the approach to research. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're not comprehensive, the research will likely be flawed, incomplete, and not necessarily of the, the maximum value. I'd like to think diverse as well. Um, the, the, one, the one thing that I, I really have enjoyed about my research pattern is that I've tried to avoid being kind of stuck in one very, very narrow field. I've been lucky to work enough. I work at, at different institutions that have kind of fostered that idea to move uh, move away from just one research track. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed the uh, the opportunity to look at military history, to look at diplomatic history, mm -hmm. to look at Bertrand Russell's life, to look at local history. Um, so that, that diversity of, of, of my research background is is something that I really that I really enjoy. There is a danger that you can be too diverse, you know, that you can kind of spread yourself a little thin over too many different areas. But right now, I think I'm, I've kind of had a comfortable, critical mass of different topics that, that I have a genuine interest in and want to pursue further. Another word to describe the 
research, I hope, would be informative. I, I really do think that research needs to reach a wider audience, and I think that's where the, the local history component comes in. I mean, as as scholars, you know, we're, we're always writing journal articles or books that will be read by various people around the world. But in terms of kind of a, a critical mass of interested people, I found the local history community is, is, is really, really interested in what people here in Aurelia, in all disciplines, be it history or sociology or political science, whatever the case might be, we're really lucky here in Aurelia to have a local community that is engaged with the university. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's really important, I think, for historians specifically and other scholars in, in general to, to engage that local group of interested people in, in, what, you, in what you do. So I, I, I don't think I've gone with five, but uh, I, I, I think, yeah. I think <laughs> three, three might be, those three might be ones yeah. that I would, I would want to highlight. All right, great. Well, thank you once again for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Research Inside Out. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast. You should also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Lakehead Aurelia, to stay up to date with all things Lakehead and to continue getting an inside look into the day-to-day happenings of our campus.